The year, 1565. The place, a tiny Mediterranean island called Malta. The military might of the Ottoman Empire, the superpower of early modern Europe, is about to fall upon the last crusading order, the Knights of St. John. It will be one of the greatest sieges in world history. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. This is episode six, The Last Crusade. I am your host, James Hauser, and I hope that your coffee was strong this morning or whatever you had this morning. I also hope you're ready for one of the most epic stories I know, the Siege of Malta, 1565, an apocalyptic struggle for faith, survival, and the key to the Mediterranean. And man, I'm going to tell y'all all all about it. Couple things I need to say, as always. First, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13, y'all. Language is clean, content is not. Second, all my sources will be posted on my website, so if you want to know where I got my information, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are all my own. That's all me. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's get into it. Our story today begins during World War II. In 1940, Great Britain stood virtually alone as the sole allied power opposing the axis of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. This is the era of Dunkirk, of Churchill, the Battle of Britain, the Blitz, their finest hour. But the British were also at war in the Mediterranean, where the axis, especially Italy, threatened their control of that sea. The struggle for the Mediterranean ended up being its own great campaign of World War II, and one that often gets left behind in the broader story of the war. Britain's most remote outpost on the borders of the Axis, at the center of the Mediterranean, was a rocky little island named Malta. Resting between Italy and North Africa, it was a constant thorn in the side of the Axis, the little nut that they could not crack. From 1940 to 1942, Britain ran desperate supply convoys through gauntlets of fire, and the German and Italian air forces and navies furiously bombarded Malta. They put all their effort into pummeling the little island into submission, but they failed. The 20th century siege of Malta became legendary, and King George VI of Great Britain even awarded the entire island the George Cross for acts of heroism and courage in the face of extreme danger. Even in the midst of history's greatest war, no one could ignore the valor of the Maltese people. Few people remembered then, or remember today. This was not the first time Malta was in the crossfire of empires, at the dead center of a clash of ideologies and a massive contest for the Mediterranean Sea. Because four centuries earlier, the people and land of Malta, a tiny little rock only significant for its strategic location, were the scene of one of the most terrible sieges in human history. Today's story is the Siege of Malta, 1565, the epic clash between crusader knights and the rising power of the Ottoman Empire. 
We're going to talk about the Ottoman Empire, the Knights of St. John, and what led them into conflict in this struggle for the Mediterranean. We're going to examine the Ottoman military and the fortifications of Malta and explain how the struggle was going to take place. And we will witness one of history's most extreme combat experiences, greatest sieges, and most extraordinary acts of valor from everyone involved, Ottomans, Knights, and the Maltese population. It is the Maltese who fought to the death to defend their island, men, women, and children who are today's unknown soldiers. And finally, I'll tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic story, guys, we got pit stops along the way. When I lead into a break, that's your moment to make a pot of tea, order food, do the thing you need to do. So, sharpen your sword, load your musket, and light your flamethrower. And let's go on campaign. Where are we going, you ask? We're going to the Mediterranean, and specifically, we're going to start at Constantinople. It is still called Constantinople. It's not Istanbul. That won't be until 1930. But it's time to meet one of my favorite historical empires, the Ottoman Empire. Now, I've always thought the Ottomans were pretty cool. For almost 500 years, they ruled a massive and diverse empire, and they made it work for longer and better than many other empires did. So you kind of have to give them props for that. For their time, for their time, they were far more religiously and culturally tolerant than any other European power. Again, for their time, because they weren't great by modern standards, but they were still better than anyone else in the era. This is when the Inquisition is going on in Spain, they're burning people alive over in Europe, so it was kind of hard to be worse. The Ottomans were a Muslim dynasty that traced their origins back to a Turkish war chief named Osman. From the 1290s onward, the heirs of Osman had been on a seemingly unstoppable tear of conquests. By 1520, the Ottomans ruled Greece, the Balkans, Turkey, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and Arabia, and were threatening the borders of Central Europe and the coasts of Italy. Their imperial power and prestige derived from two sources. The conquest of Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire in 1453 allowed the sultans to claim its heritage for themselves, and they took the title of Khazari Rum, or Caesar of Rome. They purposely modeled themselves as the Muslim successors to the Roman Empire. But after the Ottomans captured Egypt and Arabia in 1517, they also took the title of Caliph, the successor to Muhammad as leader of the Muslim community. This made the Ottomans not just heirs to the Roman legacy, but the religious and political traditions of imperial Islam. The combination of Byzantine splendor and Islamic tradition would define and shape the last great Muslim empire. The Ottoman Empire reached its peak under the Sultan Suleiman I, who was so awesome and powerful, he's kind of cool, honestly, that he was known to his European foes as Suleiman the Magnificent. Suleiman's reign would last from 1520 to 1566, and during that time he turned the Ottoman Empire into the superpower of early modern Europe. 
In the Islamic tradition, Suleiman is better remembered as Suleiman the Lawgiver for his legal reforms and administrative genius, a comparison to the wisdom of his namesake, the biblical King Solomon of Israel. These reforms managed to rationalize and combine the secular sultan's law with the Islamic tradition of Sharia law. Suleiman's reign was the Ottoman Golden Age, brilliant poetry, art, and architecture that seemed to flow out from Islamic Constantinople like a flood. His court in the Topkapi Palace was the center of learning and culture in the early 1500s. But the first and foremost duty of the Ottoman Sultan was not as a patron of the arts or even as a lawgiver. It was as a Ghazi, or religious warrior dating all the way back to the days of their founder, Osman. And Suleiman was one of the great generals of his age. It was during his brilliant reign that the Christian states of Europe truly came to fear the Turk, or the Great Turk, as they called the Ottoman Sultan. His might was legendary, his wealth unfathomable, his will unyielding. Europe lived in abject terror of the Turk throughout the 16th century, a big cloud that hung over Christendom from the east. It's no coincidence that many Western pop culture images of vast Eastern hordes and savage conquerors tend to have their origins in this time period. For instance, in Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings movies, several of the images and portrayals of Sauron's army have direct allusions to how Europeans saw the Ottoman army. When Suleiman assumed the throne in 1520, after the death of his father, Selim the Grim, he knew that, like every newly crowned Ottoman Sultan, he would have to prove his worth by leading a successful military campaign. The empire's subjects, servants, and enemies needed to know that the ball of Ottoman conquest would keep on rolling, that the war machine was in good hands. The 25-year-old Sultan's first target was the fortress city of Belgrade, which he captured from the Hungarians after a brief and brilliant siege in 1521. After that, though, he turned his eyes south, to a pesky island that had been giving the Ottomans no end of trouble since their very earliest days. Suleiman prepared to assault the Greek island of Rhodes, the bastion of the Knights of St. John. The Knights Hospitaller of St. John were the last of the great crusading military orders. As their name indicates, they had originally been an order of healers, founded to run hospitals and medical facilities in the Holy Land during the Crusading period. Their members, recruited from all over Europe, swore vows of poverty, chastity, piety, and obedience to the Pope. These vows were not always observed, obviously. Their chief mission was to care for pilgrims visiting the holy sites of Christianity, and their hospital had been dedicated to St. John the Baptist. Then someone decided that maybe taking care of pilgrims included escorting them and fighting off Muslim attacks. And one thing led to another, and pretty soon the Knights of St. John were a full-fledged military order dedicated to defending the Crusader outposts in the Holy Land. With the fall of the last Crusader kingdoms in Palestine in 1291, the Knights went on and found a new base. They seized the Greek island of Rhodes off the coast of Turkey and turned it into their new stronghold. From 1310 onwards, the Knights of St. John would hold Rhodes as the last outpost of the Crusades. From this island, the Knights waged a relentless, lonely war against the Ottomans, continuing the Crusades long after almost everyone else had lost interest. Crusading was so 13th century by this point. 
Now that they were stuck on an island, they decided to reinvent themselves as pirates. The knight's galleys wreaked havoc along the coasts of Turkey, Greece, and the Middle East, plundering Muslim ships and seizing booty and slaves. They were a constant thorn in the side of the Ottoman regime, the Pope's favorite symbol of faith and devotion, and to the rest of Christian Europe, they were an annoyingly self-righteous bunch of anachronistic lunatics. But they were increasingly hard for the Ottomans to ignore. The knights on roads were a major security risk, because their raids blocked the sea lanes between Constantinople and Egypt, which disrupted the grain supply to the capital. But, more importantly, the knights now sat alongside the main pilgrimage route to Mecca, with vast boatloads of ships going from Constantinople down to Egypt where they could make the pilgrimage. And they routinely captured ships full of devout Muslims on their way to make the Hajj, the most important journey of their religious lives. This was a huge insult to the Ottoman sultans, because they were, as caliph, they were the guardians of the holy cities of Islam, and it was their responsibility to protect pilgrims, much as the knights had protected Christian pilgrims centuries ago. Various Muslim rulers had tried to snuff the knights out. They'd launched multiple sieges of Rhodes, but none of them had ever succeeded. Suleiman the Magnificent was determined that he would succeed where they had failed. In 1522, the year after he took Belgrade, Suleiman marched 100,000 men down the coast of Turkey to a spot on the coast facing Rhodes, while a fleet of 400 ships roved down the shoreline to surround the island. Keep in mind, guys, this is an enormous army. It's enormous today. It was really enormous in the 16th century. The Siege of Rhodes began on June 26, 1522. Now, the knights had been digging in and entrenching for over two centuries by this point, and the Fortress of Rhodes was one of the strongest and most modern fortresses of its day. Led by the Grand Master of the Order, Villiers de Lille Adam, the defense would be stubborn. But they were facing Suleiman the Magnificent and the greatest army in the world. In 1522, their artillery and engineering corps were unequaled by any European power. They were masters of siege warfare. This was the age of military history, kind of an in-between age between the medieval period and the gunpowder period, where medieval practices were giving way to newer tactics of gunpowder infantry, cannons, artillery, military engineering, and the Ottomans were just the absolute best at all of these. As Suleiman's infantry hacked out long trenches and dug their way towards the defenses, his sappers and miners dug long shafts beneath the ground to undermine and blow up the walls of roads from underneath. His artillery blasted the great fortress day and night. But the knights fought back, and multiple ferocious attacks and bombardments failed to defeat them. By September, time was running out for Suleiman the Magnificent. Campaigning in the Mediterranean was always seasonal. When autumn approached, the seas became too rough for galley fleets, storms pummeled the exposed soldiers, and food grew scarce. Most commanders in the 16th century by this point would cut their losses, pull back, try again next year. But Suleiman's prestige was on the line and he held on like a bulldog. By December, it was the knights, starving and diseased, who finally began to break under the pressure. Rather than bring further suffering on the people of Rhodes, Grandmaster Lila Dom made the decision to surrender on Christmas Day, 1522, after six months 
145 days of epic siege warfare. I'll say this now and I'll say this again later. People went hard in the 16th century. Just, they just went hard. Suleiman gave the knights honorable terms. They and any civilians who wished to go with them were allowed to leave in peace. He paid homage to the valor of the knights, and looking at the elderly grandmaster as he made his formal surrender, Suleiman said, It saddens me to be compelled to cast this brave old man out of his home. Forty years later, Suleiman would come to regret the mercy he had shown at Rhodes. But for now, the island was his, and the Ottomans were one step closer to total domination of the Mediterranean Sea. The Knights of St. John were now homeless. They had lost their fortress they'd held for two centuries. Where, where are we going to set up camp next? They sent all these diplomats out asking all the European powers for a new stronghold from which they could resume their war against the infidel. Hey, you got a castle you're not using somewhere? But most Europeans pretty much viewed the Order of St. John as old, obsolete, an embarrassment. There was a new world being opened up by conquistadors and explorers. The Protestant Reformation was tearing Christendom apart. No one was interested in these, you know, cosplayers, these reenactors, and their long-forgotten crusade. Their time had passed. The world had moved on. Finally, the knights got an offer. Charles V, the Habsburg King of Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor, was the most powerful monarch in Europe, and oh, he had an island that he wasn't really using right now. In fact, no one was really using it. Charles V offered to give the knights the small, rocky island of Malta. The island of Malta is only 20 miles long and 12 miles wide. Barren, stony, no rivers, very little vegetation. It's bleached by the sun, exposed to the wind, mostly rock with little topsoil. There is one very good deep water harbor on the eastern coast, one of the greatest harbors in the Mediterranean, but Malta was so bleak that no one really used it as a major base. Around 25 to 30,000 people lived on Malta, with about 5,000 more on the nearby island of Gozo to the north. These people spoke Maltese, a unique mishmash of medieval Arabic and Italian. Malta was the backwater of all backwaters, and only the harbor on its eastern coast made the island really worth anything. So the knights weren't particularly thrilled about Malta, especially compared to the rich, fertile island of Rhodes that they had just lost. But beggars couldn't be choosers, and this was the best they were going to get. From 1530 onwards, the Knights of St. John made themselves at home on this barren rock. But rather than setting themselves up in the inland capital city of Medina, they made their base at the small fishing village of Birgu in the harbor itself. The Knights were seafarers, and their home was next to their ships. They immediately got to work using their limited resources and money to fortify the island. There was plenty of solid rock to build their fortresses, even if there wasn't much wood, which had to be shipped in from Italy. Malta might not be the best, but it could have been a lot worse. For their rent on Malta, the knights were only charged a single falcon that had to be delivered annually to the Spanish Viceroy of Sicily. This is the origin of the term Maltese Falcon. Now, Charles V did not give the knights Malta out of the goodness of his wonderful heart. 
He knew that the knights would garrison and fortify Malta so he wouldn't have to worry about doing it. And it was important that they do that because Malta was fated to be the epicenter of the great struggle for the Mediterranean. If you look at a map of the Mediterranean Sea, you might notice that the sea narrows in the middle between North Africa and the Italian island of Sicily, which are less than 100 miles apart. In the middle of this narrow passage, there is a tiny dot of land midway between Europe and Africa. That little dot is Malta, the key to the sea. By giving Malta to the knights, Charles V had placed them at the eye of the storm. And the storm was coming. Suleiman's conquest had brought the great conflict between Europe and the Ottoman Empire to the Mediterranean. At first, the Spanish and Italians had dominated the Western Sea, and the Ottomans had dominated the East, with Malta marking the rough boundary. But in the 1520s, Suleiman brought Muslim North Africa into the Ottoman Empire, and his admirals led great fleets to scour the shores of Christian Europe. Enormous raids kidnapped thousands of Italian and Spanish men, women and children, to be sold in the slave markets of Algiers and Tunis. Now, we might be in shock at how terrible all this is, and it was extremely terrible, but the Christians were doing it too with equal cruelty in Africa and America at this time. Slavery in the 16th century went both ways, and there was no real limit to who was safe from its cruelty. People went hard in all the worst and best ways, mostly worst, in the 16th century. The Catholic powers fought back against the Ottoman war machine, and in the middle decades of the 1500s, there were a constant series of naval campaigns and great sieges. The Ottomans in the East, and the Spanish in the West, and in a larger sense, Islam and Christianity, were locked in a contest for the Mediterranean. And Christianity was losing. Europe was divided into wars amongst its own powers, and could rarely unify long enough to fight off the growing power of the Ottoman fleet. Though the Pope always was like, hey guys, we gotta stick together and fight the evil Muslims, the Pope saying that, his words, not mine, these attempts usually didn't pan out. The Mediterranean was at the mercy of Suleiman the Magnificent. And in the middle of all of this, while the big dogs fought, one little chihuahua kept biting at the Ottoman ankles. From their base on Malta, the Knights of St. John continued their pirate raids against Ottoman shipping and trade. They only had a handful of galleys, but these were some of the most heavily armed and well-piloted ships in the Mediterranean, and they were deadly opponents. So while Suleiman's navy was putting hundreds of ships into battle, this small handful of crusader vessels kept poking the Ottomans in the eye time and again. With the war for the Mediterranean reaching its climax, with the Christian powers barely hanging on and the Ottoman dominion continuing to expand, Malta became the center of attention. Its geographic location in Deep Harbor made it a critical strong point for the Christian defense of the Western Sea, or a critical launch point for an Ottoman attack on Europe. If Suleiman ever wanted to bring the war to, say, Italy, he would have to seize Malta, so it was almost inevitable that the great struggle would eventually come there. Christian strategists expected an attack at any minute, and multiple Ottoman military leaders said, hey, we should capture Malta. The loudest of these was Dragut. Dragut, or Turgut, 
known by his nickname the Drawn Sword of Islam, was one of the greatest admirals in world history. One French writer claimed that he was a living map of the Mediterranean who knew every cove, every harbor, every current, every fortress. He served as the Ottoman governor of Tripoli, and he was one of Suleiman's most experienced and dedicated admirals, an expert in siege warfare and artillery tactics. His pirate raids had scooped up thousands of people off the coasts of Europe. He was the terror of Christendom, the great pirate king. And he was the chief voice. He was the one saying that we should invade Malta and destroy the Knights of St. John. He told the Sultan, You will do no good until you have smoked out this nest of vipers. Dragut knew Malta better than anyone else in the empire. It had a special significance for him. In 1551, during one of his great raids, he had laid siege to Malta and its fortresses. He had failed to take it, and during the raid, his brother had been killed on the nearby island of Gozo. Out of fury and revenge, Dragut enslaved Gozo's entire population. It was shortly after this raid that, according to the story, a soothsayer told the old admiral that he would die on Malta. But Dragut's raid had also been a wake-up call for the knights. It had shown them just how vulnerable they were to a major attack. So when the new Grand Master of the Order, Jean Parisot de La Valette, was elected in 1557, he made it his first mission, priority number one, to fortify the island to the best of his ability. Because an invasion would come, and the knights were determined not to lose Malta like they had lost Rhodes. Jean Parisot de La Valette was a crusading knight in the old tradition, a living anachronism in this new age of gunpowder and new worlds and new ideas about religion. He was in his 60s when he was elected Grand Master, and he'd risen through the ranks for the last 40 years to become the most respected and admired knight of the order. Despite the ravages of age and the hard living of the 16th century, because everything sucks in this time period, Lavalette was tall, strong, and commanding. He had led the Order's galleys in their pirate raids and been wounded multiple times in combat. He'd even been captured and enslaved for a year by Dragut himself before escaping imprisonment. Because people went hard in the 16th century. Chivalrous, brilliant, unimaginably brave, Lavalette was also ruthless and merciless against his enemies. Finally, he was a fanatically pious Catholic. All this combined to make Grandmaster Jean Parisot de Lavalette the perfect leader for the crisis that was to come. When Lavalette was elected, he reinvigorated the knights after years of neglect. He sent his galleys out each year to chastise the infidels in the name of the faith, just poking that Ottoman bear in the eye time and again. Despite their small numbers, the knights' ships caused enormous damage to the Ottoman economy. But it was in 1564 that they just went too far. The first thing the Christian pirates did was capture a huge imperial galleon sailing off the coast of Greece. This galleon was a business venture in which many of Suleiman's highest officials had put a lot of money. But then the ships hit the pilgrimage routes to Mecca. You know the biggest thing that the Sultan was always concerned about. The knights captured not only the governor of Alexandria, but also the former nurse of Suleiman's favorite daughter, Miramah. 
These raids invoked shrieks of outrage, both from Suleiman's family and central figures of his court, and they begged Suleiman to finally take the step, take Malta, destroy the den of vipers. But Suleiman was old. He was 70 years old by this point, and he'd only grown sterner in his old age. He had ruled the superpower for almost half a century. He'd led more than a dozen great military campaigns. There is a Wikipedia page just for Suleiman's military campaigns. He was the magnificent, the lawgiver, feared, admired, respected. But he was beaten down by his responsibilities and disappointments. These passionate pleas for revenge against the knights might have gotten the younger Suleiman fired up and ready to go. But they didn't persuade him now. What did persuade him were the strategic reasons. Malta had to be taken if the Ottomans wanted to dominate the sea. The raids were not the reason for the attack. They were just the last straw. Suleiman ordered an invasion force to be built up throughout the winter of 1564 to 1565, and its target would be Malta. It was time to crush the den of vipers once and for all. The stage was set. It was a battle between the old and the new, the old knightly crusading order and the new machinery of a global empire and a modern military. If we look at it this way, which is kind of a weird way to look at it, but to, get, to give you the idea, it was the knights who were the barbarians and the Ottomans who represented civilization and order. The great superpower was trying to suppress a gang of dangerous religious fanatics. But even if we put the strategic logic and military necessity of Malta aside, because there were very important logical reasons to attack Malta, the coming confrontation would just be overwhelmed, imbued, just saturated with religion. The Knights, a monastic crusading order sworn to the Pope and St. John the Baptist, carried out their raids as a last relic, a last gasp of the old crusading spirit of holy war. The Ottoman Caliph, protector of the holy places, had seen the raids on the pilgrimage route to Mecca as an insult, a defiance of his authority. Both sides saw themselves as warriors of God. Though this did not cause the conflict over Malta, wars are rarely started by religion. Religion influenced the conflict. The extreme courage and zeal of both sides in the coming struggle would be driven in large part by their zealous faith and their belief in paradise. In many ways, the Siege of Malta would be the last great battle of the Crusades. So before we get into it, what's going on in 1565, the year of the Siege of Malta? When is this exactly? Well, let's see. Queen Elizabeth I rules England. Ivan the Terrible rules Russia. St. Augustine, Florida, the first European settlement in the modern USA, is established this year by the Spanish. This is still what you might call the Renaissance era, but the late Renaissance, since Michelangelo died last year in 1564. This is the era of the Protestant Reformation, what we might call the early modern period. 
The Ottoman army that would assault Malta was the most advanced fighting force of the early modern period. They were just ahead of Christian Europe in almost every category of military power. We might have this like mindset today of Middle Eastern and Islamic forces being less advanced than the West. Whether true or not, this was not the case in 1565. The Ottomans were the superpower and they had the superpower army. The Ottoman army's troops came from a number of sources. The largest numbers would be the Spahis, men who would be given land in exchange for military service. They usually fought as cavalry, but the 9,000 Spahis that would sail from Malta mostly fought as infantry with bows, crossbows, or muskets. They were accompanied by around 4,000 Yayalars, religious volunteers led by their Imams who would fight while high on hashish, because that's always the best way to fight when you're on drugs, and 10,000 other mercenaries from various parts of the empire. But the real fighting power of the Ottoman army rested in the Sultan's household troops, the Kapikulu. This was the standing army of the empire, the troops which put the rest of Europe to shame. The most famous troops of the Kapikulu were, of course, the Janissaries. The Janissaries were slave soldiers, the children of Christian families from within the Ottoman Empire that were conscripted from a young age to form the elite infantry corps of the Sultan. They're so fascinating that I'll be releasing a short round, a short episode, on this Friday. This Friday, look out for it, just to talk about the Janissaries. Around 6,000 of the Sultan's Janissaries would join the Malta invasion force, and they would be the backbone of the Ottoman assault. Another critical element of the Kapikulu was the artillery and siege corps, which was also the most advanced in Europe. Ottoman artillery officers and siege engineers were masters of their craft. Their cannon were larger and more powerful than their European enemies. The artillery craft of the Ottoman army included modern methods like crossfire, creeping barrages, range marking for night bombardment, bracketing. The siege engineers were inventive and ingenious. Their preferred method was to dig under the enemy's wall and blow up his fortifications from underneath. And they were really good at this. This happened all the time. This, the, in the American Civil War, this happened in the Battle of the Crater in 1864. But this had been the Ottomans' go-to strategy for taking a fortified city for a long time. But behind all of this, all of this, was the vast administrative machinery of the Ottoman state. Malta was 800 miles away from Constantinople by sea, and this would require immense preparation for this great invasion. But the Ottomans were just good at this. Throughout the winter before the campaign began, they built hundreds of ships in the dockyards of Constantinople. They stockpiled massive amounts of food, water, weapons, and ammunition, calling in troops from all corners of the empire. Suleiman himself, 70 years old, remember, personally inspected all the preparations. But Suleiman would not lead this great invasion. He appointed two commanders to lead the assault on Malta. The first was Mustafa Pasha, a reliable old general who had fought as a young man in the Siege of Rhodes. Commanding the navy would be the young Admiral Piale Pasha, who had married Suleiman's favorite granddaughter. 
Suleiman was aware that these two men might not get along so well. Uh, look at the generation gap, right? It's almost a 50 to 40 year gap between these two men. So he instructed Mustafa to regard Piale as a beloved son and Piale to respect Mustafa like he would respect his father. Just, just so you guys know, that's not gonna happen. That will not happen. <laughs> but just in case they needed advice, he would send the best of the best. He would send Dragut, the great pirate king, to help them take Malta. All three men were expected to cooperate in the great siege, but dividing the command like this would end up being one of Suleiman's major mistakes. The intelligence services of the Knights of St. John had kept Grandmaster de la Vallette informed of the Ottoman preparations, but he was worried about Malta's ability to withstand a siege. Their fortifications had been built up over the last few decades, but they weren't complete. Besides the walls of the inland city of Medina, the real defenses of Malta surrounded Grand Harbor on the eastern coast, the key to the island that was the key to the Mediterranean. All right, guys, it's going to be hard to describe these to you without a map. There will be a map, I promise, on my website. You can go look at that if you have the time and energy, but I'm going to do my best to describe these to you without a map. Imagine the eastern side of Malta, pointing facing east to northeast as a dragon's mouth, with its tongue sticking out and two jagged teeth jutting out from the lower jaw. The southern half of that mouth is Grand Harbor, the best deep water harbor in the Mediterranean Sea. The two teeth sticking out into Grand Harbor contain the villages of Birgu, which was Lavalette's headquarters, and Singalea. Between these two little teeth was Dockyard Creek, where the knights kept their ships. So keep that image of the dragon's mouth if you can, the two sides of the mouth, the tongue, the two teeth, because I'll refer to it later. After Dragut's raid in 1551, the knights realized they needed to put a fort on the dragon's tongue to block another invasion fleet from just rolling into the bay. This fort became known as Fort St. Elmo. A boat ride across Grand Harbor from Birgu or Singlea, St. Elmo was just not built to spec. It was substandard. The stone wasn't good. It was in a bad position. It wasn't built, you know, entirely to the standard of modern European fortresses, but there weren't exactly a lot of time for the knights to fix that. They had, you know, months, not years. La Valette had very little to stop the massive Ottoman invasion force. He only had about 500 knights in a hodgepodge of around 2,000 Spanish and Italian soldiers. The bulk of the fighting forces on Malta would be the people of Malta. Now, Lavalette didn't have put much stock in the people of Malta. <laughs> you know, huh, civilians, what are they going to do? But Lavalette was wrong about the Maltese. So were the Ottomans. The Ottomans believed that since the Maltese spoke an Arabic dialect and weren't big fans of the Knights of St. John, that they might be willing to help the invaders. But this overlooked the fact that the Maltese were, and are, fiercely, rabidly Catholic. Their slogan was that they would rather be the slaves of St. John than the companions of the Grand Turk. The Maltese would fight just as fiercely as the knights themselves. Still though, Lavalette only had about 6,000 fighting men, half of them Maltese militia, to face the sledgehammer of about 40,000 of the Sultan's best troops. 
but Lavalette began to prepare as soon as he learned the Ottomans were building a fleet. He sent messages to every knight of the order across Europe, instructing them to return to Malta. He supervised the stockpiling of supplies, the building of new fortifications, repairing parts of the walls, and he told the other Christian powers that the Ottomans were coming, like, hey, come help me. I command like one of the most critical positions in the world. Come help me. Now, all of Europe was pretty clued into what was happening but none of them lifted a finger to help the knights. Most of them were too busy fighting each other. If anyone was going to come to the rescue of Malta, it was the Spanish Viceroy of Sicily, Don Garcia de Toledo. But it would take time for him to put together a relief expedition if he needed to. Don Garcia visited Malta in April 1565 to check out how Lavalette was doing, and he offered some advice, particularly St. Elmo. He looked over at St. Elmo on the dragon's tongue and said, that is the weakest and most important position of all the defenses of the island. You will have to hold on to St. Elmo as long as humanly possible to buy me time to come help you, because once that fort falls, the Ottomans would be able to bombard Birgu and Singlea from every angle, and then it would only be a matter of time. The forts were strengthened. Grain was brought in from Sicily. The knights repaired and polished their heavy plate armor. Supposedly obsolete now that there was gunpowder going around, but the plate armor would keep them safer than anyone else on either side. They trained the Maltese militia, prepared as fast as they could, but they were running out of time. And despite all these preparations, the Ottomans took the island by surprise. On May 18, 1565, lookouts on St. Elmo spotted sails cresting the horizon to the east. The alarm went out. The Maltese gathered up their children and animals and raced for shelter in the forts. By Lavalette's prearranged orders, the wells were poisoned with bitter herbs and animal corpses. Not a bit of food was left for the invader. Malta was stripped bare. The Ottomans would have to survive on whatever they had brought. Lavalette sent a final message to Don Garcia on Sicily, telling him, The storm is here. I'm going to hold out as long as I can, but you need to come quickly. The Ottoman fleet closed in on tiny Malta. Its white sails filled the horizon. Forty-four years had passed since the knights had fought the Ottomans on Rhodes, and now Lavalette and Mustafa Pasha, both veterans of Rhodes, both in their 70s, were here for the rematch. Dragut, preparing to sail from Tripoli to join the attack on the island where he was supposedly prophesied to die, was 80. These old men, surprisingly, would fight just as hard as the young. The Ottoman army landed on the south side of Malta. Lavalette refused to contest the landing, knowing that he would need every man to defend the forts. But still, some of the younger knights were like, let's go get them, and they ran out to launch early raids against the invaders. One knight came back with a bracelet that he had taken off a dead Spahi, inscribed with the words, I do not come to Malta for wealth or glory, but to save my soul. Both sides at Malta were firm and convinced of their faith, the force that would lead to the unparalleled intensity of the great siege. Once the Ottoman force had landed, the first great disagreement of the campaign had broken out. The general, Mustafa Pasha, 
wanted the first objective to be the occupation of the northern island of Gozo and the inland capital city of Medina. Let's secure our rear before we start to turn on Grand Harbor and reduce the forts. But the Admiral, Piale, said that he needed to secure a safe anchorage for his ships before they did anything else. This could only be the upper side of the dragon's mouth, the Marsa Musquet. And to secure the Marsa Musquet, the Ottomans had to take Fort St. Elmo. Mustafa, against his better judgment, agreed that St. Elmo, the incomplete fortress on the dragon's tongue, would be their first target. This would be the first mistake the Ottoman commanders made. By not taking Medina early, they made trouble for themselves in the future. And by not assaulting Lavalette's main forts on Birgu and Singlea, they gave him time to get those forts ready for the siege that was eventually to come. Lavalette also sent a small force of knights and cavalry to Medina, where they could raid and harass the Ottoman siege lines from the rear. Mustafa Pasha would come to regret not taking Medina when he had the chance. So all eyes turned to Fort St. Elmo. It sat on the tip of the dragon's tongue. Small, relatively weak, garrisoned by 64 knights and about 500 other soldiers. Not a great fort, kind of in a bad position, and they would face the unparalleled might of the Ottoman war machine. No one on either side expected Fort St. Elmo to survive very long. The Ottomans expected it to last about four days. But since it was built on almost solid rock, it was immune to their favorite tactic of digging under the fortifications. The Sultan's troops would have to blast the fort with artillery and fight their way in by frontal assault. Within days of landing, Mustafa Pasha's gunners were hauling those big cannons into position at the base of the dragon's tongue. These were Big boys, massive cannon. They fired projectiles weighing 60, 80, up to 160 pounds. These enormous guns began to pound St. Elmo on May 24th. Ottoman infantry snuck forward into covered positions, and soon the Janissary snipers were using their long muskets to assassinate the fort's sentries. The bombardment continued day after day, a never-ending rain of stone and iron that stunned and battered the defenders of Fort St. Elmo. Lavalette across the harbor in Birgu kept a little convoy of boats running back and forth from St. Elmo to deliver supplies and reinforcements. By nights, when the snipers and cannoneers could not see them, they brought men in and brought the wounded out. The fort had to hold out as long as possible to make time for the relief effort to arrive. Don de Garcia had sent a message promising that I'm going to come to the rescue by late June. You gotta hold out until then. On June 2nd, as the bombardment continued to reduce St. Elmo to rubble, the knights heard the Ottomans raising a cheer. Dragut, the terror of the Mediterranean, the Sultan's greatest admiral, had arrived with a fleet of North African corsairs. Now the Ottomans finally had a commander who knew what the heck he was doing, and with a reputation that gave him instant authority over both Mustafa and Piale. He knew siege warfare, he knew artillery, and he knew Malta. Dragut basically rolls up and says, guys, you've already screwed everything up. You should have taken the northern part of the island first and left St. Elmo until last. But now that you've already gotten started, we gotta finish this siege quickly. Dragut set up several new gun batteries to lay a crossfire on Grand Harbor to keep the little ships from reinforcing St. Elmo. 
and he started to move everything around to get things right to wrap this siege up as fast as possible. The maestro was conducting his orchestra. Dragut oversaw the first big Ottoman success of the siege. After finding a weak point in the defenses, the Janissaries launched a surprise attack in the early hours of June 6th. They stormed the Ravelin quickly, massacring the defenders, then tried to exploit the success by launching an attack on the inner walls. The knights responded with muskets and barrels of boiling oil as the Janissaries tried to climb their ladders and ascend the stone walls. Then the defenders unleashed a new weapon. Primitive flamethrowers, firing jets of gelatinous fluids known to the period as wildfire, or Greek fire, sent hundreds of burning Ottomans screaming from the ramparts, like medieval napalm. The Janissaries failed to breach St. Elmo's inner defenses, but now they had a foothold in the walls. The garrison was cracking. St. Elmo was at the eye of the storm. The men inside were hanging onto sanity by their fingernails after being bombarded by the heaviest guns in the world for two weeks, with the Ottomans in breathing distance. You could throw a rock and hit an Ottoman soldier outside the walls. The shell shock and pressure had to be... it was unimaginable. The commanders of St. Elmo sent a message to Grandmaster Lavalette. The message was to evacuate the garrison. The fort was going to fall any day. The defenders were growing downright mutinous. They all believed that St. Elmo was a death trap. And it was. Everyone knew that St. Elmo was doomed. The only question was how much time it could buy for everyone else. Lavalette declared that St. Elmo had to be held to the very end. They had to buy time for Birgu and Singlea to finish their defenses and for the relief mission to arrive. The defenders of St. Elmo would have to die so everyone else could live. It was a hard decision. Lavalette was passing a death sentence on the men in the ruined, doomed, smoking fortress. But Jean Parasot de Lavalette was the kind of man who could make that call. The Grand Master asked for volunteers to go replace the garrison of St. Elmo. Despite knowing they were basically volunteering to die, almost a thousand men signed on. Then Lavalette sent a letter to those knights who wanted to evacuate, saying, A volunteer force has been raised. Your petition to leave is now granted. Return to the convent, where you will be in more security. I shall feel more confident when I know that the fort is held by men whom I can trust. When they received this letter, no knight of the order would dare to leave his post. They sent a reply back begging to remain and die in St. Elmo. Their grandmaster had shamed them into fighting to the end because people went hard in the 16th century. Throughout June, massive assaults came again and again on the fortress. The shelling was so heavy that St. Elmo rocked like a ship in the sea. The fanaticism of the assaulting Ottoman forces, the discipline of the Janissaries, the hashish-inspired ferocity of the religious Yayalars, were matched by the equally devoted faith of the knights, the soldiers, and the Maltese militia that fought beside them. The walls of St. Elmo were wreathed in smoke and flame. Dragut, 80 years old, coordinated the assault from within the trenches, refusing to sleep in the tent. The imams blessed the attackers with the promises of paradise, as the priests blessed the defenders with the hope of heaven. Spanish soldier Francisco Balbi, 
watched the battle at St. Elmo from across the bay in Fort St. Angelo in Birgu. Here's what he said. The darkness of the night then became bright as day due to the vast quantity of artificial fires. So bright was it indeed that we could see St. Elmo quite clearly. The gunners of St. Angelo, for their part, were able to lay and train their pieces upon the advancing Turks, who were picked out in the light of the fires. I don't know about you, but doesn't that battle sound positively modern? Every day, it seemed like St. Elmo might finally fall, and every day it somehow held on. Attackers were burned alive by fire weapons or cut apart by the swords of the knights, or shot by musket-wielding Maltese. Some of the knights of St. John collapsed from the weight of their armor from the lack of food and water. The corpses of dead Ottoman soldiers at the foot of St. Elmo's walls combined their stink with the smoke, the fire, the ash, the dust, and the sand. Thousands of Ottomans died for every handful of defenders, but the Ottomans had troops to spare. There was one guy they couldn't spare. On June 18th, Dragut was helping to direct artillery fire in the fortress when he was struck in the head by a splinter. He was carried back to the hospital behind the Ottoman lines, slipping in and out of a coma. But even his wounding could not save St. Elmo. By June 19th, Lavalette received a report that St. Elmo could be expected to fall at any hour. Men volunteered to cross over to the crumbling fort, and Lavalette tried to send them, but they were driven off by the crossfire across the bay. St. Elmo was cut off. The garrison clung to life, fighting hand-to-hand, enduring bombardment every hour, every day, every direction. Even as late as June 22nd, three days after the commander said they were about to go, they drove off one last assault. St. Elmo had defied everyone. The Ottomans expected it to last four days. The fort had lasted 26 days under some of the most extreme bombardment and slaughter in human history. But the exhausted defenders were reaching the limits of human endurance. There was only so hard people can go, even in the 16th century. It all came to an end on June 23rd. Piale's fleet surrounded the fort from the sea and blasted it with artillery. The Janissaries charged in with a roar and broke into the inner ring of the fort. One by one, the defenders died. Several of the knights had been so badly wounded that they were placed in chairs and doorways and gates, fighting even though they could not stand until they were run through with spears or scimitars. From Birgu across the water, Lavalette watched silently as the banner of the Sultan was raised over St. Elmo. Dragut, the terror of the Mediterranean, the Sultan's greatest admiral, lived just long enough to hear the news of St. Elmo's fall. Raising his eyes to heaven as if to thank Allah for the victory, the old pirate king rolled over and died. Mustafa Pasha stood among the smoking ruins of St. Elmo in the afternoon of June 23rd. It was a Pyrrhic victory. It was supposed to have fallen in four days. Instead, it had taken a full month to defeat the tiny fortress. Mustafa looked south over Grand Harbor at Fort St. Angelo, which stood tall and untouched next to the fortified town of Birgu. He said, Allah, if so small a son has cost us so dear, what price shall we have to pay for the father? Only a few of St. Elmo's Maltese defenders had escaped by swimming across the bay. 
Mustafa gave orders that no prisoners were to be taken. The last few surviving soldiers in the fort were hunted down and slaughtered like animals. To terrify the rest of Malta's defenders, Mustafa had the bodies of the knights desecrated, decapitated, then nailed to crosses in a gruesome parody of the crucifixion. Then they were cast into the sea to float ashore at Birgu. He placed the heads of the fort's leaders on pikes facing Fort St. Angelo so their dead eyes could watch their comrades fall. Lavalette said, Oh, you think that's a war crime? I'll show you a war crime. After witnessing how Mustafa had desecrated the corpses of his knights, he ordered all the Turkish prisoners taken out onto the ramparts of St. Angelo and slaughtered in full view of the besiegers. He had their heads loaded into his cannons and fired them into the Ottoman camp, because people went Game of Thrones level hard in the 16th century. When Piale rode his fleet into the upper harbor and came ashore, he was shocked at Mustafa's brutality. He's like, why do you do this? What is, is this necessary? But both sides were making a statement. There would be no truce, no surrender, no prisoners. This was a fight to the bitter end. The Siege of Malta, 1565, is one of the most extreme combat experiences I have ever heard of outside of the World Wars. It sounds less like anything from its era and more like Verdun or Iwo Jima or Gallipoli or Stalingrad. I'm glossing over so many little details to this story, so many individual heroic actions or feats of collective bravery or gruesome details because there's a ton. It's just truly apocalyptic. And it's really hard to imagine the experience. Day and night bombardment until the night is red and smoky with the glow of cannon and explosions. Repeated assaults, almost daily. Constant sniping, raiding. The shock and fire of gunpowder warfare mixed with the brutality and close-up personal knife-in-your-guts nature of medieval warfare. All the weapons of the modern world, flamethrowers, artillery, grenades, firearms, are used in the Great Siege of Malta. But when men were face to face in the smoke and in the breach, they fought with the weapons of the old world. Swords, pikes, spears, knives, bare fists, rocks, until combat was downright Neolithic. And through it all, the Maltese civilians were the most fanatic and determined of the combatants. Maltese men, women, and children manned the defenses, throwing down pitchers of hot oil or stabbing the Ottoman attackers with knives. The women were furious, unyielding the heart and soul of the resistance. In the entire siege, not one Maltese civilian, not one, deserted their post or went over to the Ottomans. They knew the fate that awaited them if the Ottomans won. What drove them to this? What made the Siege of Malta such an oddity, such an extreme test of the human condition? Midway through the siege, Lavalette received a letter from the Pope that granted the entire island remission of their sins for their service in the war for Christ. At the same time, Ottoman soldiers were being told that Allah would grant them paradise for their service against the infidel. The battle over Malta was not started for religious reasons, but it was religion that stiffened the backs and stirred the hearts of those that fought it. The holy war went on. The last crusade was here.
Fort St. Elmo had fallen, and now Mustafa Pasha was determined to assault the knight's strongholds. The two teeth of the dragon, Birgu and Singlea, defended by Fort St. Angelo and Fort St. Michael, respectively. But they were already starting to have issues. The capture of St. Elmo, which hadn't even been the main objective, remember, they, they, they just needed to take that to get a safe place for Piali to anchor his ships, had cost 6,000 of Mustafa's men, a fifth of his army. This included half of the elite Janissaries. It also cost him valuable time. Remember, every single seaborne operation in the Mediterranean had a strict timetable due to the weather, and they were behind schedule. He was already getting impatient messages from Suleiman saying, hey, hurry up, take Malta, let's go. Lavalette's cavalry, operating from the untaken city of Medina in his rear, continued to raid his outposts whenever they got the chance. Christian ships were raiding his supply line back to Imperial territory, and they were starting to run short of food, clean water, even ammunition. I mean, Ottoman planning had been thorough and intense, but Mustafa could not just hop down to the 7-Eleven and grab some more gunpowder. Still though, Mustafa made his preparations. Birgu and Singlea were subjected day and night to the same bombardment that had ground St. Elmo into powder, which, you know, now that you think about it, might explain that gunpowder shortage. The flash and roar of guns echoed across the rocky hills of Malta as the Ottomans prepared for the Great Showdown. Lavalette knew what was coming. He'd been preparing for a month, the month that the bitter defense of St. Elmo had bought him, but there was only so much he could do. 1,500 men had fallen in Fort St. Elmo, and they couldn't be replaced. Even worse, there was no sign of that rescue mission that was supposed to be coming. Don Garcia had said June 20th, but June 20th had come and gone. The Knights and the Maltese were beginning to understand that no one was coming to save them. They would have to save themselves. Mustafa Pasha's plan to tackle Birgu and Singlea was almost a little bit of genius. The defender's guns in the teeth of the dragon blocked ships from entering Grand Harbor. You couldn't just row a ship down Grand Harbor because it'd be blasted apart. But there were ways around that. Mustafa ordered Ottoman ships dragged 1,000 yards on greased logs across the tongue of the dragon to be launched into the waters at the head at the western end of Grand Harbor, bypassing the knight's cannons. So when the Ottomans launched their great assault, it would be from both land and sea. And Lavalette did not have enough troops to hold the line. To counter this expected amphibious assault, Lavalette built barricades in the seas surrounding his fortress to keep the ships from getting too close. Mustafa Pasha sent out sapper teams to try and destroy these barricades. Lavalette sent out the Maltese Islanders, who were the best swimmers in the Mediterranean. They swam out nearly naked with swords in their teeth to fight the Ottoman engineers in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Yeah, alright, so now we've got swimming battles that just keeps getting wilder. The seas of Grand Harbor soon ran red with blood, and the Maltese had prevailed. Mustafa Pasha's first target would be Singlea. He planned a combined attack that would pinch it from both land and sea. The main assault force from the sea would be a recently arrived unit of Algerian pirates. On July 15, 1565, 23 days after the fall of St. Elmo, the Ottomans rushed the walls of Singlea as cannon blasted gaps in their ranks. Flame and shot wreathed the walls once again as the heavily armored knights struggled with the attackers. 
From the seas of Grand Harbor, the Algerians came rowing in on their ships, but they were stopped short by the underwater barricades. As Ottoman cannons roared and crashed into the walls of Sanglea, the Algerians waded ashore, their long robes drawing water as they stormed onto the beaches and scaled the walls. At this moment, one of the Ottoman shells hit a powder magazine inside the fortress, blowing a huge gap in the wall, and the Algerians rushed in with swords to cut the defenders down. Lavalette sent reinforcements over from Birgu. The battle hung in the balance. At this moment, Mustafa Pasha played his ace card. When the battle was at its peak, he gave the signal. Several boats full of elite Janissaries rode quietly past Singlea in a flanking maneuver to land in an undefended portion of the knight's defenses. They would have succeeded, and the Siege of Malta would have been over that day if not for a hidden battery of cannons at the base of Fort St. Angelo, in a cave. As the unsuspecting warriors rode into view, the knight's artillery suddenly roared and smashed them into pieces. In a matter of minutes, a thousand Janissaries disappeared beneath the water. The attack of July 15th ended with thousands more Ottoman dead and still no victory, but the Christian defenders were pretty shaken up. Except for the Maltese, who were happily fishing Algerian bodies out of the bay to rob them of their diamonds and jewels. At least someone's having fun, right? By now, the Ottomans surrounded Birgu and Singlea with 65 heavy siege guns, and the bombardment was apocalyptic. It was probably the largest and longest sustained bombardment in human history to that point, because people went hard in the 16th century. As July passed into August, Lavalette and Mustafa became more and more frustrated. They were both running out of time. Lavalette was still waiting for that rescue mission, and Mustafa was still getting angry emails from Suleiman saying, You're behind schedule. You better, get, you better get a move on right now. The Ottoman High Command won't doing great either. Mustafa and Piale were growing increasingly tense with each other as time went on. Piale failed to really enforce the blockade of Malta, which allowed Lavalette's messages to get through back to Sicily, and even at one point, a small force of 700 Spanish soldiers managed to slip through the blockade and reinforce the knights. Mustafa's frustration with Piale's youthful inexperience and frank incompetence collided with Piale's resentment of this old man trying to tell him what to do. This was the point when they could have used Dragut. But Dragut was dead. Mustafa decided to launch an all-out assault from every angle on Birgu and Singlea together. He would lead the assault on Singlea. Piale would lead the attack on Birgu. And this would hopefully overwhelm the knights once and for all. This attack would be the climax of the Great Siege of Malta. On the morning of August 7th, 1565, the bombardment stopped. The defenders, like soldiers in World War I would learn to understand, they knew what this meant. Knights of the Order of St. John, soldiers of the Spanish King, and Maltese men and women rushed to the top of the walls to prepare for the greatest attack of the siege. Wave after wave of Ottoman troops, Yayalars, Spahis, and even the last regiments of Janissaries rushed the walls with unconquerable courage and determination. The simultaneous attack hit the garrison of Malta when it was already on its last legs, and the most desperate battle of the siege took place under the furious sun of the Mediterranean summer. 
Most of the men attacking Birgu zeroed in on the Castilian Bastion, where a major breach in the walls had happened, both from the bombardment and from the Ottoman mining parties. The attackers surmounted the breach, got inside the walls, planted their flags atop the rubble. Seeing the Sultan's banner atop the breach caused panic to go up across the fortress. The Turk was within the walls, they breached the walls, the battle was lost. But not according to Jean Parasat de la Vallette. The 70-year-old Grandmaster put on his helmet, grabbed a pike, and ran to the front lines himself, shouting that this was the day to die. He led the knights, the soldiers, and the Maltese throughout the day, firing muskets at the enemy, shouting religious slogans until he was hit in the leg and persuaded to fall back, because everyone knew if Lavalette died, the defense was going to fall apart. The scene in the breach was like something from a horror movie, with dust and smoke clouding their vision, dismembered bodies everywhere, brave men falling on both sides. But the garrison retook the breach and held it. Piale watched in dismay as his attack fell apart. But Lavalette was not the only man to show immense courage on August 7th. Mustafa Pasha, also in his 70s, led the Janissaries on horseback against the walls of Singlea. He rode up and down the lines, encouraging and leading his men, exposing himself to danger. Gradually, the weight of Ottoman numbers and their courage began to tell. They forced themselves over the walls and into the heart of the citadel. Lavalette's men in Birgu saw Ottoman banners rising over Singlea, but they couldn't spare anybody. They, they were already tapped out. The tide had turned. Ottoman victory was happening. Then, suddenly, the Ottomans heard the signal to retreat. The order was passed to fall back, and just at their moment of triumph, when all seemed lost for the garrison of Malta, the Turks began to withdraw. Just at the moment when Singlea was about to fall, at the very apex of the battle, the Ottomans gave up. Why? During the very climax of the Siege of Malta, the bombardment had been deafening. It had been heard as far away as Sicily, but it had also been heard in the inland city of Medina, where the Knights' cavalry had been hanging out ever since the siege began. They guessed correctly that this bombardment meant the crucial battle was here, and they rode out to distract the enemy. The Knights' cavalry had charged down from the hills into the Ottoman rear areas at the very tipping point of the battle, sacking and killing and burning the undefended camp, even destroying Mustafa's hospital. It was the last charge of the Crusader Knights, and it tipped the scale. The Ottomans had mistaken this little charge for the relief expedition's arrival, and the panic had caused them to retreat from their moment of triumph. Mustafa was furious about the raid. This is what he allegedly said. By the bones of my fathers, may Allah brighten their tombs. I swear that when I take these citadels, I will spare no man. All shall I put to the sword. Only their grandmaster will I take alive. Him alone I will lead in chains to kneel at the feet of the sultan. I don't know if I buy that quote. That sounds a little bit too much like it comes out of a comic book. But first, Mustafa would deal with Medina, the place from where the cavalry strike had been launched against his hospital. He should have captured it at the beginning of the siege, and its continued survival had cost him dearly. Medina was supposed to be poorly defended, but when Piale Pasha led his troops towards Medina, they were surprised to see a large number of defenders on the fortifications, apparently eager and ready to fight. And the Ottoman attackers were intimidated and withdrew. The defenders of Medina were 
relieved because most of them were just peasants wearing military uniforms to deceive their enemy. Medina was very weakly defended, but the Ottomans didn't know that. No one realized it at the time, but the tide had turned. The Ottoman retreat from Medina was yet another blow to the morale of the Ottoman soldiers, and by the middle of August, despair was beginning to set in. Mustafa and Piali continued to launch attack after attack, but none of these were on the scale of August 7th, and their men were less and less willing to go forward. Thousands had died, and three months had been spent attacking, but the infidels still survived. Disease, like dysentery, and infections were spreading through the Ottoman camp. Their supplies were running short, and every time they advanced, they walked past thousands of their dead. Their willpower was starting to collapse. The Ottoman war machine, the world's best nutcracker, had finally found a nut that it couldn't crack. But now the Ottoman commanders faced a serious problem. If they didn't withdraw within like four weeks, by mid-September, the Mediterranean weather would prevent them from leaving until spring. They would have to winter on the island. Mustafa was like, let's do it. No matter how bad our supplies are, theirs are worse. If they stayed over the winter, Malta was certain to fall. But Piale was concerned about his fleet. There were no shipyards on Malta to repair his vessels. The only shipyards were still in the hands of the knights. So he told Mustafa that he was leaving in mid-September. You can come if you want, but I'm leaving. So as September finally started to roll around, communication between the two commanders finally fell apart. This would have relieved Lavalette if he knew it, but he didn't know it. He just knew that his forts were in pieces, all his men were nearly dead on their feet, and his garrison was inches away from breaking. Even if the defenders noticed that the Ottomans weren't as fierce as they once were, they were running out of time. Everything hinged on the rescue mission. Over in Sicily, Don Garcia de Toledo had observed events on Malta with growing concern. Malta needed his help, but he also knew that sending over a small force that the Ottomans would just annihilate would be worse than sending no help at all. He'd only managed to scrape together about 10,000 men and 28 galleys by August, and against Mustafa's army or Piale's navy, they would not be enough. If the relief mission was destroyed, Malta was definitely doomed. After multiple delays and running into multiple storms, on September 7, 1565, Don Garcia's 10,000 Spanish troops slipped past Piale's blockade and made landfall on the northern coast of Malta. The relief had come, finally, after almost four months of siege, and the Ottoman commanders had a problem. They still outnumbered the Christians by two to one in total, even with the relief army. But Ottoman morale was gone. They had been defeated long before the relief expedition arrived. That was just the icing on the cake. Mustafa was not exactly confident leading his beaten army into battle against 10,000 fresh Spanish troops and reluctantly gave the order to withdraw. Over the night of September 7th, the exhausted defenders of Malta listened with growing triumph to the sounds of an army in retreat. The Turks removed their guns, the troops marched out of their trenches, and the supplies were loaded back onto the boats. On the morning of September 8th, 1565, the knights, the soldiers, and the Maltese looked out over the walls to see the enemy's trenches empty. Not a man to be seen or a noise to be heard, just a blasted landscape where their enemy had been only hours before. They had survived. There was one more act to play out. 
When Mustafa realized how small the relieving army was, he tried to persuade Piale to unload the troops and supplies that had already gotten on board. Like, hey, let's, let's go rough him up a little bit. Let's recover some of the Sultan's honor. Piale was like, dude, let's go. And so there was an argument and eventually Mustafa led 9,000 men out to fight the Spanish relief army. The final battle of the Malta campaign took place on September 11th, and the attackers, the Spanish, shattered Mustafa's lines and forced him into a fighting retreat across the barren hills of Malta back to his ships. Mustafa was predictably in the front lines, exhibiting enormous bravery and leadership for a man in his 70s, and when he made his escape, he was the last Ottoman soldier to leave Malta. He left behind anywhere from 25,000 to 35,000 dead Muslim soldiers. As the Ottoman fleet vanished to the east, the great siege of Malta had come to a close. The garrison was jubilant, ecstatic, praising God for their victory and deliverance from the hand of the Turk. After four months of assault, bombardment, deprivation, terror, and siege, they had been saved from what must have seemed like certain destruction. No one was happier than the people of Malta, who had been caught in the crossfire between the knights and the empire, and gave everything they had to defend their little island. They had suffered grievously. Their home had been ravaged. Birgu and Singlea were leveled. Their fields were destroyed. Thousands of bodies littered their homes. Around a third of the population of Malta died in the Great Siege, along with a third of the knights. But they had survived. They had emerged from the smoke and the fire. Jean Parasat de la Vallette and his small garrison of religious fanatics and poor islanders had survived the full might of the early modern world's superpower. After the celebration was over, he, his knights, and the Maltese got to work rebuilding their shattered lives. In the aftermath of the Great Siege of Malta, Christian Europe publicly celebrated and praised the valor of the defenders and their defeat of the Great Turk. Though, of course, they hadn't done much to help them when they were actually under siege. What was more useful was a sudden flood of patronage and support, which enabled La Valette and his order to begin the rebuilding of Malta. The first project would be a, a new port city to replace the ruined Birgu in Singlea. Its site would be the Dragon's Tongue, which had once held the fort of St. Elmo, the great bastion of defense, in the darkest hours of the siege. It was on the site of St. Elmo that on March 28, 1566, La Valette laid the cornerstone of the new city, the city that would bear his name and stands today as the capital of Malta, Valletta. Suleiman forgave his subordinates Mustafa and Piale for their defeat at Malta, and contrary to their expectations, they did not get executed. On September 6, 1566, a few months after La Valette laid the cornerstone of his city, the Great Turk died while besieging the city of Zagetvar in Hungary. Suleiman the Magnificent was 71 years old and had ruled the Ottoman Empire for 44 years. One of history's greatest rulers, one of the only blemishes on his record of nearly unbroken success, was the Great Siege of Malta, the nut that his war machine could not crack. On August 21, 1568, Jean Parisot de La Valette died from a stroke at age 73, three years after he had led the knights to victory on Malta. 
He suffered the stroke after a day of hunting, so I guess people even hunted hard in the 16th century. The last of the great crusader knights lies today in St. John's Cathedral, atop the ruins of St. Elmo in Valletta. The war for the Mediterranean reached its climax in the naval battle of Lepanto in 1571, where an allied Christian fleet, including galleys of St. John, nearly destroyed the Ottoman navy. After this battle, the war for the great sea simmered down. The Ottomans would still expand their empire, they hadn't even reached the height of their power, but Malta was their westward limit. They would go no farther. The long march of Ottoman conquest found at least one boundary that it could not cross. The knights would linger on in Malta, but the great siege had been their last hurrah. Over the next two centuries, they gradually faded away into irrelevance. In 1798, 233 years after the Siege of Malta, the knights were overcome by a conqueror even greater than Suleiman. The young French general Napoleon Bonaparte landed on Malta and kicked the order out, putting an end to 268 years of St. John's rule over the island. Within a couple years, the British took Malta back from the French, and they would hold it well into the 20th century. The Sovereign Military Order of Malta still carries on the tradition of the Knights of St. John to this day, but is a humanitarian and philanthropic organization instead of a war-fighting power. It was under British rule that Malta re-entered the eye of the storm. From 1940 to 1942, the people of this rocky little island would experience their second great siege, this time from air and sea as the Axis powers tried to destroy the British garrison during the Second World War. The Maltese would prove as unconquerable in the 1940s as they had in the 1560s. Today, Malta is a prosperous little island nation, one of the world's smallest independent states, a lovely resort and tourist attraction. It has been almost completely rebuilt from both of its epic sieges, but there are still plenty of reminders of this little island was the site of history's last crusade. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Well, first of all, you should care because it's epic. What a story, right? I mean, I'll say it before, I'll say it again. The Great Siege of Malta was one of the most extreme combat experiences I have ever heard of outside the World Wars. I'm sure there were battles that were more intense for a few hours at a time, like, say, Gettysburg or Waterloo, what have you. But this was such a long, sustained, desperate struggle. It lasted almost four months. The pressure on both attacker and defender was the most enduring and brutal experience of its age. In its own time, and not for a while afterwards, Malta was legendary, rightly regarded as one of the epic clashes of history. But it's not quite so well known anymore. More recent events have taken the spotlight. One of the things that fascinates me the most about this is just the study and contrast at the Great Siege. The very anachronistic institution of the Knights of St. John, which was outdated even in the early modern era, along with Maltese peasant militia, battling the thoroughly modern military of the Ottoman superpower. The weaponry was pretty much the same on a technological level, but the Ottomans had this overwhelming organizational strength and technical expertise, the stuff of modern armies, that the knights never had. 
The history of the Ottoman Empire in the 1500s is almost always a history of victories, with a few notable exceptions, the main one being Malta. So why didn't the Ottomans win? Well, they did some things wrong, the defenders did some things right. Divided Ottoman command caused initial mistakes. They never really recovered from those mistakes, like tackling St. Elmo before securing other easier targets. It caused the Ottomans time and resources they couldn't spare and gave Lavalette valuable time to build up his defenses. Piale's poor command of the Navy, his bad relationship with Mustafa, allowed reinforcements to reach Lavalette, including the relief force. Dragut might have won the siege. He probably would have, to be honest with you. But his death marked the end of Ottoman command unity. On the side of the Christian defenders, the dominant figure is, of course, La Valette, whose competence, force of will, and strength of character was a critical component in the darkest hours of the siege. And La Valette's leadership was indispensable to the defense of Malta. Leadership does make a difference in some cases. But the commanders did not do most of the fighting. The courage of everyone in the Siege of Malta is just astonishing. Bravery wasn't uh, exclusive to one side or the other. It took just as much guts for the Janissaries to assault the walls against flamethrower-wielding knights as it did for the Maltese civilians to face off the Sultan's elite troops with knives and rocks. Everyone gave 110% at Malta, no holds barred. They just went hard. It was amazing. And... The underlying reason for this was ultimately faith, to a large degree. Religion was not the cause of the attack on Malta. This was for strategic reasons. The knights had been placed on Malta by the Spanish king for strategic reasons. Religion did not cause the war, but religion shaped and inspired and motivated the battle. Both the Knights of St. John and the Ottoman Caliphate were religious institutions. Their troops went to war with prayers on their lips and the blessings of their priests or their imams. And in some cases, this was all that kept them going. For both Christians and Muslims in 1565, faith was a major component of their staying power, their will, their determination to see it through to the end. They saw the world in religious terms and acted on what they believed. I think it is clear that the Knights and the Maltese could not have survived the siege without their faith to bind them together in their darkest hour, and the Ottomans would never have come so close to victory without the dream of paradise before them. Whether that's a positive or a negative, or neutral, is purely up to you. And ultimately, we're not as different as we might think. Faith and religion don't play the large role in everyday life that they once played in the 1500s, at least not for most people. But other ideas took their place. Patriotism, liberty, equality, nationalism, and in some cases political creeds, liberalism, socialism, fascism. People in the 20th century would reach similar levels of extreme endurance and harsh combat for these new ideals, these new beliefs, these new dogmas that would launch holy wars of their own. Maybe Malta wasn't the last crusade after all. And ironically, Suleiman's dream would come true. Malta would serve as the stepping stone for an invasion of Europe. Instead of the Ottoman Turks, though, it would be the Allies who would invade Sicily and then Italy, with Malta as one of their main staging points. A totally different kind of crusader, Dwight D. Eisenhower, would coordinate the invasion of Sicily from tunnels beneath Valletta, once the site of St. Elmo. The site of the Last Crusade would be the launch pad of the Great Crusade, 
that would defeat Nazi Germany. A new generation of holy warriors fighting to achieve their visions of paradise. At the end of the day, we are not all that distant from the 16th century, even if we don't go quite as hard. Thanks so much for listening to me today. I hope that you liked today's story, even if it made you never, ever, ever, ever want to travel back in time to the 16th century. If you want to give feedback or get in touch, you can check my website and leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com or find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. Hope you're seeing a theme here. Drop me a line, send me a message, leave a comment. I want to know what you think. You can also tell me what you want to hear more of, and I'll see what I can do. And just as a reminder, tune in on Friday. I have a little supplemental to this episode that I think will greatly interest you. I'm going to give you a brief short round, a 30-minute or less episode, talking about the Janissaries, some of the stars of today's show, and how they evolved as an institution over the almost 500 years of their existence. Find out what the Sultan's elite soldiers were like, where they came from, and how they ended on Friday. So I'll see you then on Unknown Soldiers.